0: So turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, where we'll read together, beginning in verse 14, verses 14 through 16. Before I get started, if you hear anything today that sounds familiar, it's because once again, Jim has completely stolen my thunder on purpose. He looks ahead, he knows I'm teaching in 1 Peter, so he looks ahead to the passage that I will be teaching in, and the week before, he shoehorns into his passage in Hebrews, the same emphasis, so... 1 Peter one fourteen through 14-16. As obedient children, not being conformed to the former lusts which were yours and your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your conduct, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So this passage begins in most English translations, and I think very likely in every English translation that's here in the room today with three English words, as obedient children. And if you just were to read the words in the original language, it would be as children obedience. The word translated obedient is actually a genitive noun. So it's a a noun, a noun that's used to modify the other noun, children, the word for children. So a more consistent translation would be as uh, children of obedience, as children of obedience, using the noun Obedience as written. And I think that makes the intended meaning just a little bit more clear. The phrase is intended to address and describe a group of people with a central characteristic in common. It's a structure, it's used that way both in the Old and New Testaments. You see it in your Bible. Uh, Sons of worthlessness, sons of Belial, sons of thunder, remember sons of thunder, uh, children of Jerusalem. just There's all sorts of uses of that sort of structure. It's a phrase of identification. So Peter isn't giving a command here, not yet. He does that in verse 15. He isn't just calling his readers obedient children, some sort of term of endearment. He's putting them in a camp, identifying them as a distinct nation and a particular family. So we, and I'm speaking to Christians only, we are children of obedience note the similarity to Ephesians 58 for you were formerly darkness but now you are light in the Lord walk as children of light similar Christians are referred to as children of obedience children of light children of the day children of the promise beloved children dear children most of all children of God now note the contrast of the term uh, the term that we're looking at children of obedience with its opposite. This is in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also formerly conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest." So the unregenerate referred to in Scripture as children of disobedience, children of wrath, children of the night, children of darkness, children of hell, accursed children, children of the devil. So you see, Scripture knows only two families. There's the family of God and there's the family of Satan. And as I do this motion here, I'm going to mix them up, so don't pay any attention to which side, which corner is which. Um. This is a, a quote from John Stott. John Stott wrote a commentary on 1 John, which, of course, has some of these same themes. He says, The contrast is stark and absolute. We're said to be either in the light or in the darkness, and there is no twilight. There's no twilight. There's no dusk. Right? There, there's just light and darkness. No gray areas in Scripture. The Scripture doesn't know gradations in terms of identity. Heaven has various rewards for obedience. Hell has various punishments for sin, but there's a, a broad chasm in between those. Right? The this, this scripture knows only two, two kingdoms, two, two families. So there's only on one hand the dominion of darkness, the children of disobedience, the family of Satan, the, the kingdom of this world that's dead in sin, resolute in its rebellion to the God who still loves them, still provides for them, provides all the blessings of creation. That is who they are, that is who you would still be were it not for the overwhelming intervention of the Holy Spirit? That's, that's one. The other realm is, is its opposite. It's the dominion of light, the children of God, the kingdom of heaven. It's a, a particular and peculiar people that are no longer bound to their sin, no longer blinded in our minds by the God of this age. You, you Christian, child of obedience, you have been made alive in Christ. God has caused you to be born again. That's further up in uh, chapter one. You now can see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. That's the difference. You're, you're now called children of God. You call the, the servant of the universe, Father and Lord and Savior and king and God. You are his child, his obedient child. A child of obedience. This is who you are. It's who you are. It's not just an address. This is an emphatic statement of identity. We don't want to miss it. You're a child of obedience. We are children of obedience. Peter's not asking us to be obedient. He's not telling us someday we will be obedient or we should be obedient. He's identifying us with obedience. This is who you and I are. Right? This is us. It's a contrast with the unregenerate sinner or the pre-regenerate sinner. What makes you and I different, what moved us from one family to another, it's not anything we have done, but again, that fact that God has caused us to be born again. We are regenerated. We are made new. We are made alive spiritually. We are given the, the... Our essential character is the same as the life that our resurrected Savior lives, the life that was always with the Father and was manifested in the Son. Right, That's the life we live. If you have repented of your sins and put your faith in Christ, that is who you are. All of it a gift of the grace of God. So obedience or disobedience to the revealed will of God, that's the essential outward difference, isn't it, between the Christian and the unbeliever. So the scripture refers to the one as children of obedience, the other as sons of disobedience. That is, after all, what sin is. Right? Sin is lawlessness. Sin is disobedience. Disobedience to whatever will of God a person understands. It comes down to this, and I borrowed this from uh, A.W. Tozer. He has a whole message on just these, these, this little phrase. I'm not doing that to you today, but close. (laughs) It's close, but it's not not all the way. It, it, It comes down to this. Who's the boss? Who's the boss? Who's in charge? Being a Christian, and I know somebody said Alyssa Milano or Tony Danza, that's not what I'm talking about. Who's in charge? Like, who's in charge of your life? Being a Christian, being a child of obedience, that means that you've come to the point, at some point, where you have joyfully and completely acquiesced to the will of another. Right? You've submitted your will to his. You admit that God is the boss and you are not. Right? God is sovereign, God is good, God is wise, he's powerful, he's king, he's master, and he is God. And as God, he deserves your fealty, your love, and your worship, and your obedience. That's a good definition of what it means to be a Christian. A child of obedience. Well, what's the alternative? There's really only one other boss. If you don't submit to God, there's really only one other possibility. There's only one other sovereign in your life, and it may not be who you think it is. Most people who aren't Christians will declare they follow no one but themselves. Right. There's a famous poem, it's called Invictus, by a British poet, W.E. Henley. You may not be familiar with his name, or um, you, you may have heard of the poem. I don't know. How would I know? There's a lot of people in here. <laughs> but this is the poem. I know you've heard part of it, so listen to this carefully. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud under the bludgeonings of chance. My head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Right? Rebellious nonsense. Very popular. And I think even though this was written long ago, I think he captures the, the spirit of the age still today. Um, you see in this, he, he speaks of the straight gate, the punishments in the scroll. He, he's declaring his total disdain for submission to the will of God. He's in charge. He's the master of his fate, the captain of his soul. And Henley died in, in 1903. He sadly learned otherwise. But this is still the spirit of the age, pretty much unchanging. You see this in modern music. You can, you can see its theme in modern media. You can see it in tattoos, and if you look at those, and bumper stickers. I follow no one but myself. I'm not a sheeple like, like you guys. I'm not a follower. I'm a leader. I make my own way. Follow no one but myself. I obey no one but myself. No one can judge me. I'm the captain of my soul. I am my own God. That's the spirit of the age. Most unbelievers would say they they obey only themselves. They serve serve no God, no higher authority, only themselves. They they decide what's right and wrong. There is, after all, no objective standard outside of myself. I obey my own self-taught conscience. That's my highest authority. Now, some... Some might tell you they're spiritual. They they might have. They might tell you about their God. My God does this or that. Upon careful consideration, you'll find that their idiosyncratic God sounds remarkably similar to themselves. Right? The their, the supposed God of the individual unbeliever, and I'm speaking of myself before I was saved. This is me. Uh, that God never seemed to disagree with them. Never ask anything of them that they're not willing to give. Uh, their God may have a moral code one they'll usually find easy to follow, coincidentally, gives them some relief from those last remaining embers of their God-given conscience. That was me. They recycle. They protest. Uh, They give. They may give or serve in a a charity. Uh, Might wear a slogan on their T-shirt. Signal their virtue in ways that cost them nothing, just enough to convince them that they're generally good-hearted, truly worthy of their own loyalty, their own approval. That, that the God of their imagination ought to approve them. Now, it's, it's obvious that the God of one's own imagination is no God at all. It's just an image made in your own image. So w- w- whether a person claims to have no authority other than themselves, or they, they claim to have the, the be loyal to some God that they've made up, really collapses to the same thing. It's self-worship auto-idolatry, worship of the self. But in reality, a person who worships a false god or an imaginary god or simply exalts themselves as serving Satan, that's the truth of it. They're dwelling in his kingdom, in his realm of darkness, can only suffer loss from service to that evil, malevolent master. So we all conform to something. We all conform to something. We all serve someone. We all obey somebody, disobey somebody else. Whether we think we're serving ourselves or a fake deity of some organized religion or some mystical notion of our own imagination, we're conforming to the will of Satan. We're just living in easy agreement to the dictates of our sinful nature. Easy. That's what I want to do. And there's no bravery in that. There's nothing there in which to take a moment's pride, let alone a month's worth yeah that was a good line if you catch that one um, it's it really if you think of it it is the easiest it's the most cowardly it's the the least thoughtful mode of living. I just live according to the dictates of the flesh, just mindless dead conformity to the flesh right now that sort of disobedience to the revealed will of God, whether that's in the conscience or in the creation or in the written word, that kind of Disobedience doesn't shouldn't surprise us. shouldn't surprise us. we expect pagans to peg. we expect pagans going to peg, right We expect that. you expect sons of disobedience to disobey. That's, there's nothing surprising there. Tragically, though, this disdain for obedience to the will of God has found its way into the church, into the children of obedience. Now, I'm not speaking of this particular local body of believers. Um, I'm I'm referring to the visible church, the the evangelical church as a whole. In most pulpits and pews this morning sit a lot of people, many of them believers, many of them, unfortunately, false converts, who made a separation between salvation and obedience. You've heard it before. It's the idea that's sometimes called free grace theology. If you have Christian friends, you've heard it before. Uh, John MacArthur's written several books in opposition to it, as have Wayne Grudem and others. Free free grace theology is the idea you you can and you must separate faith from repentance. You can come to Jesus that is Savior only, and perhaps later, if you're so inclined, you could come back to the other Jesus or the other part of Jesus, or, and you can make him your master. Something he wasn't before, and he will be only so long as you find it tolerable. That's a divided gospel. It's a divided Jesus. And you, you may come to him as one goes to a doctor or a dentist and get the cure for what ails you, in this case, you know, the judgment for your sin, but then you just leave with no further obligation. If you choose later, you might come back. You might agree to listen to what that physician has to say. You might um, perhaps choose to obey to one degree or another. That's the idea. You come to Christ, you get what you need freely from him, and off you go. Makes no demands. He can make no demands. He's just always ready to forgive and forget. Now, free grace theology, it's an overextension of something true and good. It's falling into a ditch off the side of a good road. Uh, let me try to explain it. This is the argument. Since grace is free, since the offer of the gospel is a free offer of the gift of grace, salvation is based solely on the work of Christ on our behalf. We have atonement in the cross. We have justification, perfect righteousness in the perfect life of Christ. Salvation is all of Christ. has nothing to do with us, certainly nothing to do with any human works. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Do you have any objection to that? I hope not. <laughs> you can't have any objection to that. That's biblical soteriology. That's all true. Grace, the grace of salvation, is, is free. It's, it's free to the recipient of grace. It's not free. It wasn't free to Christ. It's free to the recipient of grace. We, we bring nothing. But here's the ditch. The free grace theologian asserts now that repentance, that turning from sin, being obedient to Christ, changing our, our thoughts and our behavior that has to have no connection to conversion whatsoever. If you assert that we must be obedient to Christ, as Peter's doing here, that we must seek to obey him, then if you say that there are ethical requirements in the new covenant, then you are adding to the gospel and you render it a false gospel. You've added works. That's the the thinking. So there has to be a separation between faith and obedience or repentance. You can come to Christ in faith without any change in behavior, without any striving against your sin. You just accept him as Savior. It's good to obey Christ. That's something you might want to consider later on, but it's separate from salvation. It's separate from the free offer of the gift of grace. And that's utterly unbiblical. That part. The scripture uses the terms faith and repentance interchangeably. I'm just going to read a couple to you. Acts 26. This is Paul's defense before Agrippa. He says, Paul says that he kept declaring to everyone that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. That's how he characterized his evangelism. Repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. In Acts 11, Peter recounts his vision, how he took the gospel to the Gentiles. And in response to that, that testimony, those that were gathered in the church of Jerusalem, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well, then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. The repentance that leads to life. Right? This is clear in Scripture. Repentance, which includes performing deeds appropriate to repentance, that's an inevitable result of conversion. Now, you got to hear that it's not a condition of our justification. It is always its result. That's the point. And we should be clear about that. You can't come to genuine saving faith in Christ without repenting of your sins. Faith and repentance are two sides of the same conversion coin. To turn to Christ is to turn from sin. Think about it for a second. How ridiculous to think you come to Christ with no intention of turning away from the sin that put him on the cross. Imagine coming to the foot of the cross, to your Savior, to admitting that you need a Savior. Your sins have put him on the cross. Coming to him, asking for forgiveness of those sins, with no intention whatsoever of putting away that which put him on the cross. It can't be done. You, You will not find a carnal Christian in Scripture. What will you find? Sons of disobedience and children of obedience. That's what you'll find. Okay. When we come to Christ for salvation, we come to a Christ who simply is both Savior and Lord. He is. Romans 10, 8, 9 says this. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus as... Savior, Jesus as friend, Jesus as lamb, Jesus as sacrifice. No, Jesus as Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Salvation comes from confessing Jesus as Lord. Why? Because he is. He is. He always is. There's only one Jesus, and he is always both Savior and Lord. He doesn't become one because of what you do. People say, I made him Lord. <laughs> he didn't make him Lord. We come him, when we come to him, we come repentant. We come hat in hand. We come trembling, but also hopeful, joyful, right? We see in him the rescue. We understand now who he is. He is our Savior and our Master and our King. He is our sacrifice, our, the, the Lamb but he's also our God. That's who he is. Jesus Christ is all there is to those of us who know him. We would sacrifice everything else. All we ever wish to do is that which pleases him. Now, all I can ever do to please him is obey him. That's what pleases him, obedience. How do I know that? John fourteen fifteen. if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John fifteen ten. if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. First John 2, 3, and 4, and by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. The one who says I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. If you're a Christian, you're a child of obedience. That's how Peter addresses his readers. It's identification of them and us as believers in Christ. We are those whose intent and desire, whose characteristic way of life is obedience to Christ. And then Peter spells it out in the rest of the passage. So let's continue. Next, Peter says, not being conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. Again, there's no command here yet. This is a present participle. It's translated that way in the in the new uh, the legacy standard, but most other translations translate it as an imperative or a command. They say it says do not be conformed. It probably says do not be conformed in your Bible unless you're using the LSB. But really, it's it's not a commandment. He's just building onto your identity. This is what you do and have been doing as children of obedience. One thing you have not been doing is allowing yourself to be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. You've been fighting that pressure to conform. That's what he says. You're instead conforming yourself to the revealed will of God as children of obedience. So, again, it's not a command. It is just what believers do. We actively do not conform to our former lusts. The the desires that led our thoughts and actions prior to our conversion, Peter calls them former and he says that they are in our ignorance, those are the things that we're disobeying. We're mortifying those things. We're, We're putting those to death. As children of obedience, we continue to strive towards sanctification. We are repenting against those deeds of the flesh. We're fighting those, those lusts, those sinful desires. They once had dominion over us, and now they don't. They're former. They're former. They're no longer our lusts. Now, they may still have some power over us, to, they may still entice us towards sin, but they've lost their dominion, their sovereignty. They belong to a prior a former way of life. 1 Peter 4.3 says this, For the time already past is sufficient for you to have worked out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Said that word on the first try, did not think that was going to happen. The time already passed is sufficient. It's more than sufficient. Right? It's over. That belongs to who we were apart from Christ or who we would be apart from Christ. It it has no part in who we are in Christ. Those were our lusts and our ignorance. Points to a time when we didn't know something. We were ignorant. What didn't we know? We didn't know Christ. We didn't know the gospel of Jesus Christ. We were ignorant. And in our ignorance, we had those. Those lusts. We were spiritually dead. As obedient children, not being conformed to the former lusts, which were yours and your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you. its another phrase there, but like the Holy One who called you. And the, another rationale for the command. that's still to come. Still no command yet. Like the Holy One who called you, the Holy One has called you. Now, I thought about what to do here. There's not enough time to do a thorough exposition, explanation of the holiness of the one who called you. So I'm hereby reserved the right to preach an entire sermon on the holiness of God before I die or or after. I don't care, but I really would love to do that. So I'm just going to do a little bit. I'm first going to remind you of a sermon a few weeks ago in Hebrews, Jim explained the term the living God. You remember that? The fact that God alone has no source of life outside of himself. He's, he's the only independent being. Everything else depends on something else. God alone is independent in that sense. He is the source of all life and, and needs no, nothing outside of him. So holiness is, in general, the attribute of separation. God being otherly. God, God is different. Now, some of his attributes can be understood by us. Um, and we, as his image bearers, we're we're to reflect some of those attributes to the degree that we can. But God remains other. He's, he's like nothing else. He's, he's holy in that sense. God is omniscient. His knowledge is complete. There's nothing he doesn't know. There's, there's nothing he cannot know. God is omnipresent. Think about that. He's everywhere without dimension. He has no no size. He's not big. Okay, I said it. Kids sing the song, Our God is So Big. Well, that's soft blasphemy in my mind, and I'm not saying you shouldn't sing it. (laughs) Because God is not big. He's not. He's not big. He's not small. He is without dimension. He's without size. Now, he can express himself in time and space even in a human body, in, in the second person of the Trinity. But yet he is omnipresent. He's timeless. He, he's eternal, both in eternity past and eternity future, never having begun, never ending, without, without time in his nature. He alone is not trapped in a succession of moments. You're trapped in a succession of moments. Right now you're really trapped in a succession of moments. Right? But we always are. He is not. He can see all time, any time, equally vividly. He can exist outside of time. It's not something we can conceive of. He's three divine persons in one being. God is three divine persons in one divine being. We can't begin to fathom such a one. Or we can only begin to fathom such a one. Okay, so you know there's a lot more to this. To say that God is holy is to, to declare that, that, his otherliness, his general perfection, his incomprehensibility, his transcendence. To say that God is holy, though sometimes in Scripture it has a more restricted meaning, and I believe that is the way it's being used here. God is holy in that he has no sin. Grudem's definition of God's holiness is that God is perfectly distinct from everything outside himself, that's the more general, and is absolutely morally separate from sin. He's absolutely morally separate from sin. And I think that's the reference here in verse 15. God, God as Holy One, emphasizing his moral perfection. Absolutely morally separate from sin. It's a contrast to mankind, especially unregenerate mankind. So as the Holy One who called you is holy, be holy yourself. Now we have the command. Be holy yourself. Since the One who called you is holy, be holy. It's the Holy One who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light from a destiny of... Eternal torment that was well deserved to a heavenly inheritance, as he says, protected by the power of God, completely undeserved. Since the one who did that for you is holy, be holy yourselves. It is just a reasonable response to the calling of the gospel, it is the necessary response to an encounter with this holy one. He is your Savior and Lord. So just continue, continue in your obedience to the revealed will of God, just be true to the precepts of the new covenant those ethical requirements that we live under as Christians, that's obedience, that's holiness. It's the same as not being conformed to the former lusts, which were yours and your ignorance. It's just now that we have a command, be holy. You're God's children, you're God's called out ones, you're his ecclesia, his church, his people, his priesthood, his image bearers, his name bearers. You're closely identified with him. You've identified with him publicly before his church, before his holy angels. Before him in baptism and confession and commitment, you're here now with his people. You're part of his bride. You're in his kingdom. But by his blood, you are his. And you have to be like him more and more. Be holy. Be holy in all your conduct, all your behavior. You see that? Word there translated conduct, behavior, it's, it's not a common word. It's used more by Peter than anybody else. He's very concerned with our conduct, our way of living the manner in which we deal with other people. It's about outward conduct, how it reflects our inward condition. We're to be holy, like God, in our conduct. Uh, Peter's emphasis, in particular, is our conduct toward unbelievers. You'll see that as we go through. Remember, he's encouraging us to live in conformity to the will of God in a difficult situation, Uh, not in our former lust, not the will of the sinful world, but to live humbly and submissively in the world, but uncompromisingly as children of obedience. Note also all of our conduct, not just Sunday morning, it's not just here, not just among God's people, all demands consistency, obedience, holiness in all of our conduct. At home, at work, at school, in your employment, in your leisure, in all of your conduct, your entertainment, everything. All of your conduct. The ultimate rationale for that is in verse 15. Because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. That's the rationale. Why must we be holy? Because he's holy. So you may have been wondering why the scripture reading was in Leviticus and what does any of this have to do with eating the wrong things. But you don't have to wonder anymore. The quotation here is a reference back to the holiness code in Leviticus. Uh, It's chapters 17 through 26. God lays out all the laws. And he repeatedly gives, as the rationale for obedience to those laws, words like, I am the Lord your God. I am holy. You shall be holy because I am holy. It is is the character and holiness of God that is the reason why we must live that way. We must reflect his character. Now, what Jim read was written to the Israelites under Moses. We always have to be careful not to misapply scripture, but you see that the the command to be holy is repeated here, so we're, we're safe to take that as a command. We're to be holy. And the reason we're to be holy is because the one with whom we are in closest relationship is holy. We're as image bearers. We're as obedient children. We're to be holy. Holy before the angels who long to look into the gospel of our salvation and how we live that out. We're to be holy before one another, to bring encouragement and exhortation to one another. And always we we live out our holiness, or lack thereof, before God himself, the Holy One who called us. Okay, So we've seen our identification as children of obedience. We've seen an encouragement of our living that out in the negative, where he says you're not being conformed to the former lusts that were yours in your ignorance. We've seen now the positive command to be holy. The ultimate rationale for that is because of the holiness of God and our relationship to him. Now there may be some questions in your mind. I'm going to go through, try to go through some of these questions briefly. What does it mean practically to be holy? You can say be holy, but what does that really mean? What do I do when I go to lunch? How do I be holy? I go, what is it? How do I work it out? Um, what are the ethical requirements of the new covenant? What does that term mean? If we're not under the Mosaic covenant, what do we do with that? What about God's commands to, to uh, say Adam and Eve or to Noah to you know, predate the Mosaic covenant? How do we deal with that? What about legalism? Is this legalism? Because I legalism is bad. I don't want this to be legalism. Um, what about sinless perfectionism? Is that what we're, is being taught here? Is this moralistic? So I'm going to go through that just briefly. And of course, there's a lot more, you know, obviously a lot more to be said. Uh, so what are the ethical requirements of the New Covenant? How do we handle the law of Moses, the commands of the, the uh, Old Testament? Of course, anything that's given to Christians in the New Testament is binding on believers. Okay, clear it off. There are some transitional elements in the gospel. There's transitional elements in the book of Acts that need to be understood. So, uh, Jim did a series on Acts some years ago, and he, he carefully addressed those. So that's online if you want to. There's a lot of them, but it's worth it. Uh, he talked about, like, casting lots. Was that okay? Uh, the Jerusalem Council, eating, you shouldn't eat meat with the blood in it, you know. There's some transitional elements there that we have to be careful about how we take those as commands. But in general, New Testament commands are binding on Christians. If an Old Testament command predates the Mosaic covenant, so if it's given, and if it wasn't, you know, clearly commanded to a specific person, specific time, purpose, place, then it does teach ethical principles for all time. General commands that were given to Adam and Eve, for example, or to, or to Noah, those are ethical principles that, uh, persist. Apply to all mankind. As far as the Mosaic covenant, well, nine of the ten commandments are repeated, actually strengthened in the in the New Testament. But the law of Moses as a whole is not binding on Christians, obviously. Okay. Just look at what you had for for breakfast, what you're going to have for lunch. We don't we don't consider those to be binding. The, the, you're seeing that in Hebrews as Jim goes through through Hebrews but some of the precepts that are in the law of Moses are are part of the law of Christ are part of the the New Testament uh, commands and, and principles. So we have to understand that like there's some of those that don't apply and there there are others that do because they're repeated in the New Testament. The rest of the Old Testament, you know, after the law was given to Moses, we have to be careful with it. We have to be careful to understand if there's commands there if they're given to Israel under the Mosaic covenant that we're not under or if they are uh, still binding. And there are some principles for understanding that. I'm not going to go through all that, but it's, I'll just say it's not that hard. I, a lot of times we try to find the ethical conundrum. Like that one that thing that's really hard the Nazis at the door. Ooh, uh, do we lie when the Nazis are at the door? Well, I, I do know the answer to that, I think, but how often have the Nazis been at your door? Like, <laughs> you do your taxes every year. Right? You you have your review with your boss every year. You talk with your friends and your spouse, and the the day-to-day life, it's not really that hard to know what is required of us. It it really isn't. It's really good to study. I I love to study biblical ethics. I think it's really good to to do that. You learn a lot, but it's not really necessary for your day-to-day living in general. So is this legalism then? And if it isn't, what is legalism? Well, Peter's not teaching legalism. Legalism is a cry that you hear all the time whenever you say what the Bible has to say about biblical ethics. Mortifying your sin, actively striving to live in a manner consistent with your calling, being holy because God is holy, that's not legalism. Legalism is the idea that obedience to law saves you. And nothing that I've said or that the Bible says should lead you to believe that your behavior with regard to the commandments of scripture doesn't have any bearing on your salvation. Okay? But to say that the person who's received that gift should and will live in obedience to the holy one who called them that's just reasonable and biblical. Obedience again, not a condition of salvation, but it is an inevitable result of salvation. So it's not legalistic. Not teaching sinless perfectionism. I'm teaching first John with the young adult class. 1 John chapter 1 is enough to completely destroy the idea that we can ever be sinlessly perfect in this life. We're never going to be free from the presence of sin or its enticement in this life. Well, in the flesh, we'll be tempted to sin and we will sin. I'm not teaching you sinless perfection. But we have to be in that Romans 7 fight with sin. That's the point. Right? That's the point. We ought to live as that we're characterized as children of obedience. We are at war with sin. We're actively fighting it. We're mortifying it. That's why we need the command to be holy. We need that command because we're not holy, perfectly holy. We need the command to be more holy, to continue to avoid being conformed to our sin. Right? The fight against sin is over when, when, at your last heartbeat or when you hear the trump. Not before. If you think you hear the bell to end the round before the fight is over, you're going to take a beating, right? The fight is not over until you're dead. You got to keep fighting. Be holy. So is this moralism? No. I, I would just leave it there, but I kind of have to define moralism. So I'll define it one way. There's multiple ways. This is one way. A kind of personal moralism where you people set up a law for themselves that is not based solely on the on the biblical requirements, the, the ethical requirements for Christians, but some other way. And again, it's a, the intent is good. The intent is a good one. We are to be separate. We are to be different. But we're to be different in the way that the Bible says to be different. We don't have to make up a new difference. So this is, you know, you have to dress a certain way. You can't go to certain places. Uh, I was in a church once where bowling was frowned upon and theaters were frowned upon. That's what I'm talking about. That is, That is actually... Going beyond what is written, making a law where there is no law—that itself is a violation of a command of Scripture. So, in an effort, in an effort to live obediently, you are actually living disobediently because you are now making a law unto yourself, which is a, a violation of Scripture. First Corinthians four six. I'm not going to read you; you have to look it up yourself. If you don't believe me, the Westminster Confession of Faith has this to say: "The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for His own glory." Man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture, or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. Did you get that? All things necessary for life is in the Scripture. The Cambridge Declaration of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals was issued in 1996. It was in regard to the five solas. This one is in regard to the doctrine of sola scriptura. We reaffirm the inerrant scripture to be the sole source of written divine revelation, which alone can bind the conscience. I love that term. Scripture alone can bind the conscience. The Bible alone teaches all that is necessary for our salvation from sin and is the standard by which all Christian behavior must be measured. We deny that any creed, counsel, or individual may bind a Christian's conscience that the Holy Spirit speaks independently of, or contrary to what to what is set forth in the Bible, or that personal spiritual experience, can ever be a vehicle of revelation. Amen and amen to that. Scripture alone can bind the conscience. That's the formal principle of the Reformation. That really is it in a nutshell. Scripture alone can bind the conscience. Now, we can disagree on an ethical point of Scripture. We can disagree on whether you ought to do this or that thing. But we have no right to apply bindings to a Christian based on anything other than Scripture. We can argue over Scripture, but we have no right to place any other other ethical or theological or any other bindings on a believer. Okay, so remember the point of 1 Peter. Peter writes to suffering persecuted believers. He wants them to glorify God. He wants them to live joyfully, happily, and, and confidently in the midst of that suffering. That's his purpose. And here's one of the keys. Be holy. No matter what happens, no matter what the implications of living this type of life, be holy, live in obedience, live as a child of obedience. Now, why would he say that? Sounds like bad advice. That's exactly what's going to get him in trouble, isn't it? In, in their day and in maybe in ours one day, it's going to get him into trouble. But, but that's the point. The trouble's not the point. Right? Trials are, Peter said it, trials are distressing, but they're temporary and they serve a purpose. God-glorifying, happy-making, re- reward-resulting, faith-proving sanctification of the child of obedience. And so now I'm done. Now uh, the ball's in your court. You've just had a command of Scripture. You've had a command from God, from the Holy One who calls you. Be holy. What will you do with that? It's none of my business. The Holy Spirit knows what to do. He knows how to apply his word to his people. I'll just remind you of this. As obedient children, not being conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your conduct, because it is written, you shall be holy, because I am holy. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kutani Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.